Hello everyone, this is The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. Thank you so much for sticking with us here on The Game Podcast. We're glad we can keep you informed and hopefully entertained in what are very strange times for everyone. And like everyone, we are continuing to social distance. So joining me remotely are Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft. Uh, Hello guys, hope you're both keeping well. Jonathan, let's come to you first. Mm. How was your Easter? Lots of chocolate eaten? Lots of, well, watching lots of chocolate getting eaten and... um... A uh, lovely time with the kids, Easter egg hunt, sunshine, garden. Um, it was uh, it was really, really nice. Um, no football on, though. I mean, Easter's always, always a big day for... It's always like a big weekend, isn't it? So that was a bit strange, but um, family-wise, it was lovely. Oh, sounds delightful. Although, I don't know why you're not eating chocolate. Oh, no, I, 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 was, I was basically picking up scraps, but um, <laughs> uh, they, I just couldn't get my fingers on any of it. They were stuffing I their see. faces. I see. Yeah. All right. You've got to be quicker, Jonathan. Got to be quicker. Uh, Gregor, time for our, uh, well, I want to say weekly, but it's not, is it? It's twice weekly catch up on your press up challenge. How's it going? So I'm stuck on 45. Oh, Gregor. I, this morning, this morning, right, I was um, I was down, I was doing the push ups and my fiance was, was uh, recording the, f- the footage for the group chat and I got to 44 then 45, and I was shaking so badly, and my fiancé burst out laughing. She actually oh. laughed, started la- oh. she started laughing at me. So I collapsed in a heap. I think I had one more in me, so I'm blaming her. <laughs> the only disappointment from this is, I can't believe we have not seen this footage. I think there's, you, see, you know, you should I be thinking you, of us. If I trusted you, I would send it to you privately, but I'm sure you'd probably do it on social media. So that's not happening. <laughs> well, especially, especially if you're shaking towards the end. I Absolutely. might have to have a little giggle. Yeah, indeed. Uh, did you have any chocolate, though, yesterday? On Easter uh, Sunday? My, my chocolate didn't last until Easter Sunday. <gasps> what? Yeah, devoured it what beforehand, you... so. Oh, goodness me. That's why if your tr- press-ups are not going yeah. to plan. If chocolate's in the house, it doesn't stay around long. Oh, dear. Well, all right. We've got to work on that as well as your press-ups then, Gregor. Uh, Coming up, Gregor is going to tell us what it's like to play at Wembley Stadium. Lucky for him. And there's loads more coming up right after this. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on. Settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books. Contacts. Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tributes have poured in for Chelsea goalkeeping legend Peter Bonetti, who sadly passed away on Easter Sunday at the age of 78 after a long illness. Nicknamed the Cat by former teammate Ron Tindall, he played an important role in Chelsea's FA Cup final victory over Leeds in 1970 and also won the League Cup and the UEFA Cup Winners' Cup with the club. He played no less than 729 times for Chelsea across three decades and his clean sheet record stood until 2014 when Peter Cech had the honour of breaking it. 
He only made seven appearances for England behind the great Gordon Banks, but was part of the 1966 World Cup winning squad and also featured in England's quarter-final defeat to West Germany in the 1970 World Cup. As Pelé once said, the three greatest goalkeepers I have ever seen are Gordon Banks, Lev Yashin and Peter Bonetti. His talent was obvious to see, with tributes pouring in on social media. Peter Shilton said this, I was in the 1970 World Cup squad with Peter as a lad. He was a hero of mine, a tremendous player and a true gentleman, RIP goalie. John Terry added, I'm heartbroken, a Chelsea legend and hero. Gary Lineker said, so sorry to hear that Peter Bonetti has passed away. He was a terrific goalkeeper for Chelsea for so many years. Got to know him when he was England's goalkeeping coach and he was a delightful bloke. R.I.P. The Cat. Neville Southall said, R.I.P. my friend and one-time goalkeeping coach. Peter Bonetti, a lovely, lovely guy, a fabulous goalkeeper, a great coach, a truly fantastic gentleman. Thanks for all your help. And the Chelsea manager, Frank Lampard, has also added his tribute. And their meetings at the club where he worked on matchday hospitality, Lampard discussed his warmth as a man and says it is a huge loss to Chelsea and football. Jonathan, if we come to you on this first, what memories spring to mind when you think of Peter Bonetti? Well, it really feels like one of those evocative names from, from my childhood, certainly, if I'm talking personally, um, a name that I sort of grew up with, really, that, that, that's gone. I mean, he, um, I didn't see a lot of Peter Bonetti, but he did come to Scotland and play for Dundee United um, towards the end of his career. Um, that was 1979, 1980, which is around about the time I was eight years old. It was about the time I was watching football. And I just remember that, first of all, the name was different. Bonetti, you know, it was, it was an era where we didn't have foreign players in, in, in British football, not many. So any name like that was was, was sort of evocative, um, you know. It was just it sounded different. Wow, who's this guy? And um, I remember the Panini football stickers as well. I, 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 that, that was bang in the era where I was um, I was really into my football stickers. And football players always looked about fifty years old in those pictures. And Peter Bonetti, I remember I remember the picture. He looked like um, you know looked, looked like your dad rather than a footballer. Um, but my dad, um, when he did come to Scotland, told me about this guy, um, told me about 1970. My dad's English, by the way, and, and he told me about, you know, how this guy was had the misfortune to be behind Gordon Banks and, you know, greatest of all time. And he was he was a really good goalkeeper in himself. And, he, you know, how, how that sort of career went. And, um, and it's funny that, you know, that, I guess the other thing is that nickname, the cat, um, I think any kid playing football in, in a playground or whatever, when they go in goals, you sort of use the nickname The Cat. It's like another thing that he bequeathed us. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, what's, what strikes me hearing the tributes from people who, who actually knew him or played with him was what a good player he must have been and what a, what a sort of very important figure he was at Chelsea as well, what an influ- influence he had um, and, and appears to have touched people there. Um, but, yeah, he, he had a little brief time in Scottish football too and, and I suppose a little little tiny part of my childhood uh, was gone. Well, you know, you're so right when you hear all the tributes and when someone like Pele is is praising you like he did when he referred to him as one of the, the best three goalkeepers that he'd ever seen, you know, Peter Benetti was obviously doing something right. Am I right in thinking, Jonathan, that you've spoken to Peter Schmeichel about him? Yeah, um, I know Peter quite well, and and, and um, 
Benetti um, was uh, a goalkeeping coach after he was a player. He had a very distinguished um, uh, career as a goalkeeping coach. And his, his he, he was Peter Schmeichel's final coach of his career at Manchester City. Um, Peter was, you know, towards the end of his career at that time. And, and we were talking about it this morning. He said, he, you know, he, by that point, he basically trained himself. He didn't really... Um, need to do a lot of work in terms of the technical stuff with 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 um, the goalkeeping coaches, but he just said what an unbelievably nice man and what an utter gentleman Peter Bonetti was, and um, you know what what a name, you know even for someone like Peter Schmeichel that that, that Bonetti was. Um, so very very sort of happy memories of, of of working with them, and he said he was a kind of guy that you know the entire dressing room loved, not just the not just the goalkeepers that worked with him, but a very popular member of staff. Yeah, the cat-like reactions that he had and his, his, his was incredible, especially as well when you consider uh, he was only five foot ten in goal, so not the biggest when it came to goalkeepers. I know former teammates such as Ron Chopper Harris and, and John Hollands have been reminiscing about his eccentricities. I think he was quite innovative as well when it came to, to being a goalkeeper. He was a pioneer of coming off the line and rolling or throwing the ball out to a teammate rather than booting it upfield. And he also pioneered, talking about pioneering, the goalkeeping gloves. So very much a forward thinker when it came to football. But Gregor, when you think of eccentric goalkeepers, what name comes to mind for you? What name comes to mind? I mean, there's the kind of... The obvious ones like a, a Bruce Grobelar and a Bartes <laughs> and a Higita, those types of characters. But you know, I, I, I'll be completely honest. That Peter Bonetti's it was slightly before my time, and it's not. I've been enjoyed reading, um, reading some obituaries and, and learning a bit more about him actually over over the last twenty four hours. And um, you know, I, I, I've reading that he largely shunned the kind of King's Road social scene at Chelsea. And there is, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but there is a a kind of goalkeepers have a, a a bit of a reputation of being slightly slightly different, slightly different from from the rest of uh, football players, and and that has definitely been the case throughout through my career. And and um, one one person that comes to mind actually is is uh, is Jim Layton, who was uh, an Aberdeen and, and Scotland legend, who Johnny will no doubt know very well. Uh, he was he was part of my Scotland under twenty ones coaching setup. Um, and he was he, he, <laughs> he was very he was very eccentric. I think Johnny will back me up here. He kind of <laughs> almost almost kind of like he, he was a great guy, absolutely great guy. But you, you felt like he could be a kind of a school head teacher in another life. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know what you're getting at, Gregor. I know what you're yeah. getting at. <laughs> um, but you know, it, I think they can take so, so many different forms, and it is a cliche. You know, not every goalkeeper is slightly different, but. Um, Certainly, goalkeepers I played with—they were cut from a different cloth. Paul G- Paul Gerrard's another one at Nottingham Forest who was one of the kind of wildest individuals I've ever encountered. He used to play for for Everton. I think most people remember him from from his time at Everton. And if you you know if you lost a a goal in training, it was a kind of a personal affront, a tragedy. And if it was a game, it was kind of heads you want heads to roll. Um, and I could, you know, I could go through lots of goalkeepers. They all had their own little quirks. And, and I, I say again, it is a bit of a cliche, but I, I think there is some truth to it. Mm. It's interesting. When Brentford had uh, Wojciech Szczesny on loan from Arsenal many, many years ago now, um, I remember people saying that he was quite 
different, let's say. Um, and he always, in training, wanted to play as an outfield player. And his thing was, that I never get to score goals. So that's why he wanted to do it. Is that the same for a lot of goalkeepers, do you find, Gregor? That actually, if they're given the opportunity to play outfield in training, they'll take that opportunity. There have, have been some, yes. Although I've, I've also played with some who could barely kick the ball straight or 50 yards, you know. <laughs> so that's uh, that's not universally true, but there are some. And there are obviously some who, who struck a football beautifully. And you look at someone like uh, Manchester City goalkeeper right now and you think he could play in centre midfield. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think the, the, it's, the thing, it's the thing about the kind of bravery, I think, as well, of goalkeepers. It's such a, a different attitude and uh, I don't know the kind of the sort of the characteristics you need to need to have to be a goalkeeper are very different to that of, of an outfield player and you know being the last line of defence and diving at people's feet and you know it's it's a kind of thing that so it seems mad I mean I, I would never be able to do that um, and I, they are certainly a, a little bit different <laughs> Jonathan, what do you think yeah. about goalkeepers? Do do you think we love a crazy keeper? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess eccentricity is part of the, the the sort of fascination with them, and you know, uh, you just think people like Fabian Bartes from a Scottish perspective. Alan Ruff was a huge part of my childhood, and he had a strange approach to particularly balls going in the top corner. He, he'd like to watch them, but he had, he had a bit, he had an odd odd approach to the game. But he was actually a very good goalkeeper in many ways. Um, you know, Jim Layton is a hero of mine, but as, as Gregor could have touched on, um, a slightly different character. I remember people like Jean-Marie Faf, the kind of playboy Belgian keeper, very glamorous. Uh, of course, Rene Higuita, Campos, Andy Gorham. I mean, Andy Gorham, the flying Andy pig. Gorham, yeah. um, again, quite an unconventional approach to, let's say, um, sports science, the way, the way he lived his life. Um but I tell you what, I, I, I always enjoy interviewing goalkeepers because they do see the world in, in a different way. They tend to be quite independent characters who aren't really afraid to who know their own mind and they're not really afraid of that. And, and, you know, Peter is a friend of mine. He's a very good example of that. His son Casper is very similar. And I've interviewed Manuel Neuer, who, who you know, a strong character. Um, interviewed um, Nuno Espirito Santo recently. And, I mean, he is such a kind of, unique individual different view of the world and he said a couple of really interesting things about goalkeeping you know from the point of view that it's the only position where you're part of the game and yet you're not part of the game you know you're, you're on the field but you're spending a lot of time watching the game from the from the edges of it and you know he he sort of talked about how that that helped form his um kind of ideas about coaching because he was felt he was almost like a coach on the pitch some of the time but it really struck me that that, that it is that one position that um, your whole perspective of football and your whole involvement of, of, of the game it, it's just it's just different and that's before you even get to the fact that the consequences of a mistake are so much greater than for, for outfield players um, and maybe the rewards of a great save are also greater as well so I, it, it, it's no wonder these are sort of fascinating guys iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Now, the latest developments in attempts to finish the 2019-20 Premier League season are laid out in the Times today as the FA propose handing over Wembley and St George's Park to play games behind closed doors amid the coronavirus pandemic. It is thought Wembley could host as many as four matches per day in order to keep travelling at a minimum, with St George's Park's 228 hotel rooms and 13 football pitches used as a quarantine training base in order to keep players and staff together. Sanitised, quarantined, behind closed doors football are we in favor of that proposal gregor a couple of weeks ago when we discussed this i i poured scorn on it i thought it was a kind of ludicrous idea and the 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 number of moral and practical kind of complications that are involved in terms of the the need for so much kind of widespread testing that would be required for it um at the moment we can't even get enough tests for nhs staff the logistical issues about quarantining kind of everyone from the bus driver to obviously all the players and staff media even um players having to stay away from their families probably for a number of weeks and and that's the thing maintaining it for weeks and weeks and (laughs) and keeping what would happen if someone was to contract the virus so huge huge issues and and then i spoke to to wes morgan um at the end of last week for an interview on in saturday's paper and and I spoke to him about this, and he said yes straight away. He, I was really, really surprised by that. I thought, you know, he said he said if it's safe, as long as it's safe, that was his kind of clear caveat. But he said if it's safe, then players should do it. And he he almost thought that players had a bit of a responsibility to play in those circumstances, in any circumstances that were safe, uh, if it was if if they could do it. Um, and he thought, you know, it would give the nation a bit of a lift. And and you know, all of that is true. I saw. <laughs> I'm a little bit torn about it. I think, I think obviously, as as I said a couple of weeks ago, we're still learning a lot day by day, and and it could be that um, this is kind of a pipe dream. But I think there are also huge ramifications financially if the season is not finished, and it isn't. That is a big, that is a big issue. That is a big concern, and that's something that if if it can be, if the season can be finished, uh, and the players are willing to do it, and and it would give the the nation a little bit of a lift if they could watch TV watch the games on TV, I know they won't be able to be there in person, um, then I'm not against it. I think it should should be explored. Okay, so you think it should be explored. Jonathan, do you agree with Gregor or do you think this is just ludicrous and we can't go ahead with something like this? I'm a bit like Gregor in that I, you know, three or four weeks ago, I just said, absolutely not, let's not be daft. Um, I suppose I'm, I, I'm becoming more open to it Probably principally because of, of, of what Germany are trying to do. And, and, and it looks like they're leading the way with the Bundesliga. Um, and I can see so many problems with it, potential problems with it. But the fact that one of the big leagues is going to press ahead and try and execute this will at least give people uh, something to follow. Um, you know, if the Germans can pull it off, then it might be 
Um, it might be the sort of test case. Um, but I, I, right now, right here and now, I would still say it, it feels to me it's low down the, the list of the nation's priorities, or, sh- or rather it, it should be. That would be my, my starting point. Um, I think a, an enormous amount of testing has to be done to, to allow football to be played um, you know, in, in biosecure environments or, or whatever. I think James Gearbrand wrote a really good piece about that today. And, you know, in Germany, it's causing potential controversy. And that in Germany is a country where, you know, they, 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 they're doing so much more testing than, than we are. They're, they're not as short of um, tests as the UK. But even there, they're wondering whether it's really appropriate to test so many players all the time. We don't actually are fit and well. But I think, I think as James outlined in his piece, players would need to be tested once every two days or something, was it? I mean, it, 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 was a, it was a lot of regular testing. At a time when people aren't getting tested here, it would seem that that would be the first big issue. There'd be an issue of, you know, if you're playing in this secure environment, but a player gets injured and has to go to hospital and leave the environment, um, you know, have to go to a, that, that puts a strain on the health service. Do they then have to isolate to come back in? And, that, and the same goes for the people that transport them. Um, there's, there's, there's all there's a huge number of of issues, and I would have thought one of the issues was whether players would want to do it as well, because you're asking players to to go away from the families for six or seven or eight weeks, however long it takes to finish the season, and you know stay away from them in order to stay in a kind of uh, virus-free zone where they can finish the season. And I would have thought asking footballers who are already being asked to take wage cuts of thirty percent or whatever to to then go and leave the families for for all for that time would be quite difficult but maybe you know greg has spoken to, to, to wes morgan about it maybe that that is more typical of, of what players actually think i don't know i, I don't know um the, the only point i'd make is that um the germans have got a need to finish their season because they're still waiting for a tranche of tv money Whereas the Premier League isn't. The Premier League's received its TV money, so the question actually isn't as pressing. It, it, you know, the question over the, the missing games is whether TV companies are going to ask for the money back, whereas the Germans are actually waiting to receive it. But it, 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 the EFL and, and lower down is where they, they need to play football again, but they need to play football again in front of stadiums because gate receipts are so important to them. So I guess that my, my point is, how necessary is it in England, given that the Premier League don't need it for the TV money at this point, and it's of little benefit to the EFL because they're not going to get the gate receipts that they need if we're playing closed doors football. So, as I say, at this point in time, it doesn't feel like a big priority, and it doesn't seem to me enough reason in English football to do it right now. But if the Germans execute it, then maybe that will change everything. I mean, that, that is the big problem, isn't it, in all of these conversations, is that this is just talking about trying to sort out the Premier League. We're forgetting about the EFL and how on earth do you fit in 71 clubs and the schedule that they need to all finish as well. Just one interesting line that I saw earlier on today, and it's to do with Oriel Romeo, the, the Southampton player. I don't know if you saw this, either of you, but he suggested that if matches do get the go-ahead in whatever capacity and in whatever way 
that it is able to do it safely in the Premier League, he has suggested that cameras should be put into dressing rooms so that the fans can feel closer to their team and and feel a part of it, knowing that obviously they can't be in the stadium. I'll come to you on it first, Gregor. As a as a former player, would you like the idea of cameras in the dressing room, or is that something that is sacred and, and should be left alone? <laughs> um. <sighs> I think it would. I think you would have some opposition to that. I mean, you can immediately tell you one manager it was Jurgen Klopp who said that he would. The day that happens, the day he leaves his job, I think he said. Um, but that was in relation to having kind of behind the scenes documentaries, which are so in vogue at the moment. I personally wouldn't have uh, much issue with it. I mean, I think you know, I think it could be something that if before before and after a game, rather than kind of. In the crunch moments, which is kind of just before kickoff or half time and things like that, I think you would have a lot of opposition then because sometimes it might be the, the truth is you, that supporters might see things that uh, they shouldn't see. So <laughs> um, I'm not sure how how much uh, how much chance that has got really in sort of in the in depth kind of real behind the scenes uh, footage. But I think one thing is true is that in whatever form football kind of does restart, it's going to be it's going to be different. It's they're gonna. It's it's likely. It's looking more and more likely that football is going to start before fans are allowed back in the stadium. So it is it is a valid kind of question to sort of start to think what what kind of experience can we give the people who are who are watching from home um, when they can't be in the stadiums. I think that's important because you know that's one of the that is one of the benefits as we've said is that at this time at the distraction of having having football to watch would be would be a real uh, a real boost for a lot of people I think. Mm. Uh, Jonathan what about you do do you feel like the dressing room is is sacrosanct and we shouldn't be interfering with it? No I'm a journalist I want to I want to see it. No inside. yes glad to hear it Jonathan. <laughs> um I mean look Greg Greg makes a very sensible point that there's times in in the lead up to a game or or there's specific points where maybe where tactical stuff's being done or um a hairdryer has to come out that 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 um definitely people involved wouldn't want cameras but there's other times it'd be fascinating to see it and I think it would as, as Gregor said it's, it's going to be different football's going to look different um if, if it's closed doors games it's going to be a different tv experience and this might it's a good idea it might just be part of making it different in a in a good way um as you know given the the well as as long as as long as it's um uh not compromising as I say teams maybe tactical plans or or those intimate moments. I do think footballers have got a right, football people have got a right to a bit of privacy as well. You know, they can't be completely on show. But those documentaries you mentioned, they seem to, you know, tread a line or 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 they're edited in a way that that, that people involved are comfortable. So a bit of that could be quite interesting. Could be. It could be. And let's not forget, I know non-league football on some of the uh, television channels, they show the dressing rooms at half-time, for example. I think as long as the players are made aware... It could work. And also, I know in rugby league, for example, they do do it, but they don't have the sound up. So we wouldn't hear the conversations, but you might see the environment. You might get a gist of the atmosphere in a dressing room. And talking of atmospheres, just very quickly before we move on, what are the strangest atmospheres you've ever watched or, or played a, a game in? Gregor? Uh, I was thinking about this before. I think, you know, it's always strange playing in an in a empty stadium. And you, I, I did that in earlier in my career in reserve games and stuff in some pretty big stadiums. And you kind of you hear the echo of your own shouts around the stadium. Or one of the weirdest ones was with Scotland 21s again we, in Moldova. 
of all places. Uh, this real kind of old kind of Soviet bloc brutalist concrete stadium that was, and there was a kind of whole kind of brass band uh, welcome onto the pitch, and there was no nobody in the stands. It was one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had. Um, watching games, I think. Uh, Scotland versus Italy at the San Siro in 2005 because it's the only it's the only game I've ever been at where you actually were watching the, the stands more than the pitch because the supporters were fighting each other for 90 minutes the home <laughs> the, the ultras from different uh, from different clubs were in uh, were just charging each other for 90 minutes and, and even when Andrea Pirlo was curling in two free kicks it was hard to keep your eyes on the pitch <laughs> You wouldn't know where to look, exactly that. Um, Jonathan, what about you? Can you match or better, Gregor? Um, well, yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I, I, I think of Italy in terms of, of the watching the fans and stuff. I mean, uh, I, I've, I was at um, AC Milan, Manchester United, I can't remember the year where, I mean, it was it was pure madness. And, and I was at um, I was in Rome in 97 to watch England, Italy, when basically the entire game was, was charges between the, the police and fans. But... Um, I, I was at the Croatia England game in Rijeka last year. That was um, a closed doors game, and that was an experience for all of us uh, because it, it was top. It was like watching top class football, and yet not watching top class football in a fascinating way. I mean, you had people like you know Modric on the pitch, and you seemed really close to them because there was no fans to sort of get in the way. Uh, you could hear what the players were shouting. The thing that I think everyone put in their reports and struck us all was how loud Jordan Henderson is on the pitch and, and how quiet everyone else was. You know, Jordan was very much the boss of, of the England team vocally. That, so that was, that was fascinating. But in terms of weirdness, in terms of reporting on games, um, it's got to be the Faroe Islands against Scotland um, in 1999, I think. Um, the Faroes have got a new pitch now, but they, they used to play... Uh, the, 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 there was basically like the main island, um, and then there was a little island, well, there's many islands, but there was a little island just, just off it, which had a cliff top with a bit of grass that was just flat enough to play football. And there was a hotel around the edge of, 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 the, of the field, and the press box was actually essentially two or three hotel rooms uh, put together. So you, you, you were sitting in a in a kind of Holiday Inn room but that had been refitted to be a press box, watching um, Scotland against the Faroes um, with Matt Elliott playing for Scotland. And it was the first game, I think there was the first international match where there was a female, line, a, a lineswoman, who ended up send, effectively sending Matt off because he, he, he uh, forearm smashed a Faroese striker off the ball. Um, but then the other thing I remember was there were very few fans in the stadium, but there was a field behind it. And he just basically got shepherds coming across the, the field with a sheep and kind of lingering to watch some of the game and then going away again. Um, and we had to finish our match. Scotland, of course, made an absolute mess of it and, and, and drew this game. It was, a, it, was, it was a low point for Scotland at the time, although there's been many lower points since. But, of course, we had to write this kind of inquest piece while being ferried back to the main island and then getting another ferry to the um, to the airport to take off because it was charter planes and, and, you know, no internet at the time, just absolute carnage in terms of uh, trying to write stuff. And I remember sitting on the deck of this ferry um, trying to file to copy while the, the ferry door um, 
had basically opened and we were starting to pull away again and I was having to kind of like trying to run off the ferry well onto copy at the time. So the whole experience was weird and I rambled on about that Pharaoh's game, but that was a great, uh, <laughs> that was, that was a great press box. <laughs> well, it certainly sounds different, that's for sure. And Jonathan, we've got to talk about a piece that you've written for the Sunday Times uh, about Bitten AFC, uh, the ninth tier club from a hamlet of 9,000 people just outside Bristol, are one of five sides left in the FA Vars and are through to the semi-finals where they are supposed to be playing concept from the Northern League. Now, Bitten are officially the smallest team in England left with something still to play for in this 2019-20 season, with the FA Vars still only postponed rather than cancelled, unlike their league campaign so uh, Jonathan it's, it's a really interesting story a huge dilemma I suppose as well uh, how do we solve this problem with the pandemic filtering down into the lower leagues it's, it's odd because um, for, for all these clubs there's the FA Vars and there's the FA Trophy which are you know for um, National League and below so the Vars is the very smallest one and um, you know Bittner in a semi-final against Concert um, Corinthian, which is the team that sprung from the old Victorian side, Corinthians, they're still in it with Hebburn and, and, and Leighton, Leighton Town. And they're all, they're all really small teams who, you know, sort of basically bitter in a village. Um, some of these are small town teams. Players are getting paid £40, £50 a week. They're not really on contracts and so on. Um, and the weird thing for them is that the leagues have all been cancelled. Um, so, you know, Everyone around them in their leagues, that's it. The players have gone off, um, no more football. But they're, they're hanging on because um, when the football gets up and running, one of the priorities for the FA will be trying to complete their own competitions. So they haven't, while they've cancelled league football, they haven't cancelled the VARs, they haven't cancelled the trophy, and quite obviously they haven't cancelled the FA Cup. And I spoke to the chairman of Bitten, and it's, it's, it's just a really odd situation for them because they... they um, you know, he was explaining to me how, you know, they don't own the players. The players are guys who are more or less playing for the love of it. So they're, they're trying to encourage them to keep fit. Um, but at that level, a lot of players will go off and, and sign for other teams in readiness for the next league season. Um, so they, they can't really say with any confidence who they're going to have for, 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 for when, if this Vars does get, does get played. Um, but of course, they don't want it taken away because... For, for for them and for the other four teams involved, it's it's the ultimate. You know, it is their Champions League or World Cup final. It's a chance to go to Wembley. They can't. If you're at that level, you're not really going to go above a, fin- a final at Wembley. So um, they're they're just left in this this sort of crazy limbo. And then there's a the financial aspect that most of these clubs are so heavily dependent on the bar takings from their clubhouses, and and you know all the clubhouses are shut. There's no football on, and there's no, there's no sort of money coming in. So it's just a little reminder that you know we're talking about Premier League football and EFL football. Should it be played or not? But there's a whole huge, huge network of grassroots football below that, of which these are the last sides still left standing, as it were, that we really should be thinking about too. Mm, and, and assuming, I'm assuming here that uh, there are players in that bit inside who will have never played at Wembley before and are itching to have that possibility. Yeah, I mean, you know, for, for them, of course they want this to, to, to still be a possibility because it would be, it would be the, the, the pinnacle uh, of, of, of playing football. They're not, they're not necessarily doing it for the money. You know, the chairman, John Langdon, was making the point to me that 
you know, they'll, they said their average wage is about, they get 60 or 70 pounds um, for playing on a Saturday. And he said, most of our lads could actually earn more than that if they, if they, if they took a Saturday job, you know. Um, so for them, this is it. You know, getting to Wembley, FA Vars final, it's just not going to get any any better than that. And, and I, I just hope, and you know, when football does restart, that that this doesn't get lost in all of this. You know, it's, it, was, it was easy in a way for the FA to cancel these leagues. And they ha- I think they had to, you know, when you hear the complexities, I think they had to. But easy from a PR point of view, because nobody doesn't really create a big stir. But, you know, it'd be, it'd be such a shame if they then cance- also cancelled the, the trophy and the VARs, because while it wouldn't make big headlines, as you say, Nat, the, 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 there's players there that this would just be getting, you know, for without being too melodramatic, the, 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 the lifelong dreams they, they've got this would be it. They'd just go and, and they might not get another chance. Mm. Gregor, you do know what it's like to play at Wembley. For those bitten players dreaming of it, what does it feel like? Yeah, I mean, the the, the non-league finals day as well has been a, a huge success. The the FA Trophy is was actually my last game in professional football with, with uh, Grimsby Town. Um, and the FA Vaz is played uh, beforehand. It's played, they're played back-to-back. And admission lets you watch both. So sometimes you get 40,000 people uh, at Wembley over the course of the day to watch non-league football, which is pretty unique and remarkable, actually. Um, I, I, I wrote about my kind of relationship with Wembley last weekend for my journeyman revisited column because the, another final is is the what's now called the, the leasing.com trophy, um, the EFL trophy and Portsmouth and Salford City were supposed to play last weekend in that as well. So that's another final that is in limbo. And it's, you know, because it's a one-off, a one-off day that I, I see no reason why why these shouldn't be played. Um, and yeah, playing at Wembley is is, is the pinnacle, really. Um, I, don't think, I don't think it really matters what level you play at either, not just for these guys. It is the pinnacle. I've, I've got friends who played in the Premier League all their careers and never played at Wembley. Um uh, my last two games in professional football were at Wembley, so you know it's <laughs> you. I, I missed two two finals, the the FL Trophy finals through injury, and I thought I had some kind of curse. I was never going to get the chance to play there, and then um, I played in a National League playoff final, um, and I, I, the contrast in emotions. It was one of the toughest experiences of my career, walking out behind my teammates for the FL Trophy final, um, seeing kind of. 50,000 fans, beautiful sunny day. The atmosphere was just brilliant. And and I was in my suit. I had to take a seat behind, you know, behind the, the dugout. Um, and then if you fast forward to when I when I played, I just couldn't wipe the smile off my face. And it was, yeah, it, it's it's just, I think it's the pinnacle. It's the, it's the best, the best venue you can play at in this, in, in this country. And, and uh, of course, if there's any way, I absolutely agree with with Johnny. If there's any way that these finals can be played, actually, it doesn't matter when it is either. I think the, these there's you know there's so little, not not long, not much of the of of this uh, competition to left to play. Um, 
And it's so, it's so important for these clubs and these players that I think they have to find a way to get them played. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Jonathan as well. You may find yourself with more time on your hands in the coming weeks. So do remember you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's only a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We will be back with you on Thursday for The Game podcast. Stay safe in the meantime. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Mother's Day is just around the corner and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM.